I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This week on Routine Checkup, we sit down with Lisa Salberg, the founder and CEO of the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. This is a fascinating conversation. We hope you love it as much as we do. Well, uh, this is going to be interesting. I think we're going down a road that we haven't quite gone down before. There's so many roads when it comes to the heart. There are so many roads when it comes to health in general. But mm-hmm. when it comes to the heart, there actually, literally and figuratively are so many roads. Yeah, that's right. And uh, we're going to be talking ta- <laughs> four main. Is this a metaphor? Are you guys, main, ta- are you guys talking about roads. the heart, the organ, the heart? Or are you talking about... A meta, like the metaphorical, there's so many roads to the heart. Well, let, let me, let me see what you think, Brian. When I say the word hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, uh, what do you think we're talking about? Relationships. <laughs> it's gotta be. Yeah. Uh, we are joined today by, uh, with Elisa Salberg, who is the CEO and founder of HCMA. Lisa, I'm going to give it to you. Give us a little intro. What is HCMA and, uh, and what is HCMA? Uh, up to? Oh, here we go down rabbit holes. So Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is a 501c3 nonprofit. We were founded in 1996 and I am the flawed founder. I've been at this the whole time. And um, HCM or Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy is a disease that has been known by 75 different names since about the mid 50s. Holy shit, really? <laughs> yeah, that's part of why people get confused as to who we are. The first name for it was functional aortic stenosis. And then shortly after that, we came up with idiopathic hypertrophic subaortic stenosis. Oh, that one just rolls right off the tongue. Beautiful. <laughs> it, when you're 12 years old and you're diagnosed with it, it's like a challenge to be able to say your disease name. Yeah. And then you sound really smart whenever you say it. So the teachers assume you're going to be good at biology, but that's a whole other story. Um, asymmetric septal hypertrophy is another, an apical HCM and non-obstructed and obstructed. There's there's 75 different names because every time the heart is thick in a different part, somebody else decided they were going to name it. Mm. But what HCM really is, is a genetic heart muscle disorder that affects one in 200 individuals worldwide, regardless of age, ethnicity, geography, one in 200 people will have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Oh, wow. Some of them will require pretty invasive medical attention and some will be pretty benign. But it's kind of hard to tell where you're going to be because you can be low symptom burden, but at a high risk of something called sudden cardiac arrest. Uh, okay, so okay. it is a complicated disease path. You may have heard of it before, but you didn't know it. Mm. If you've seen in your communities a young athlete who would die suddenly and unexpectedly, 
about half of those cases are hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And mm. of those, half of them are African-American males, but HCM affects all genders and ethnicities and races equally. Mm. So there's some big problems that we have. Mm. The really weird part is it doesn't affect just athletes, but that's what gets the headline. Mm -hmm. So one in 200 people worldwide will have this. And of the sudden deaths that occur in the U.S. under 24 years of age, 20% of them will be athletes and 80% will not be athletes. Mm, wow. Okay. So holy smokes. I mean, first of all, thank you. That was a, that was an incredible intro into the world of HCM. Um, can you, I mean, it sounds come with, with the, the, the knowledge that there was all these different names for it, what I, what I gathered from what you said, and correct me if I'm wrong, is basically there's a similar problem happening in the heart, but it can happen in multiple different areas of the heart. And so if it's happening, you know, in this area, we called it this. And if it was happening down in this spot, it was called this. But can you give me like the overall sort of idea of what is at the... Huh, no pun intended. What's at the heart? Of the heart uh, yeah, what's at the heart of the matter? What like what is actually happening with HCM? What is it? What does that mean to have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? If you break down the words, it kind of makes sense from the Latin hyper too much. Um, so the heart is too thick, it's too stiff. The walls of the heart can be thick in different parts. So the problem typically is in the left ventricle, which is kind of the most important part of the heart. Don't tell the other parts of the heart. I said that they always get funny about that. <laughs> so the left ventricle is the pumping chamber. So sometimes the wall of the septum, the wall between the right and left heart can get too thick. Sometimes that thickness is at the bottom of the heart and the apex. Sometimes it's on the free wall of the heart and it can be anywhere and it can be in multiple places. The heart can then do something like obstruct and we're not talking about like obstructive coronary artery disease where the vessels in the heart are problematic. The blood can't leave the ventricle Ooh. because the mitral valve crosses over typically and touches the septum and blocks the blood in the ventricle. And this can happen from birth to 90. You don't have to be old for this to happen. It is a genetic problem. And if you break it down deeper, and we're in a society today that we can talk about genetics and functional genetics because we're understanding it better. Inside of your heart muscle, you have something called a cardiac sarcomere. You probably didn't know you had one, but I assure you, you do. It's the thing that contracts and relaxes your heart. Mm. Our sarcomere is hyperactive. So our hearts are always engaged. We produce more blood per contraction and what's called an ejection fraction than most people because the heart muscle itself is too thick and it pushes out too much blood, and then it obstructs in some cases, and then you build up pressure, and then it finally gets out of the way, and it mm. goes back out to your body. So the symptoms can be really confusing. Mm. You can get short of breath with exercise. You might have some feelings of your heart palpitating, and you might think it's anxiety. You may have been told you just have an innocent heart murmur, and you might have been told you have athletically induced asthma. So there's a lot of different things that could lead you to your heart. And the work of the HCMA is to help people understand the disease, to build care models. We have 50 centers of excellence around the United States, and we have uh, international programs as well. We want to get people to the right care because it's a complicated problem to treat. 
totally. Your, your cardiologist on the corner probably hasn't seen too many of you. So we want you to go to a specialist. Mm-hmm. I, now, I just want to I just want to clarify for anybody who hasn't kind of picked up on this, but you've in in that explanation, you were you were saying we and our hearts do this and we are um, you have HCM, correct? Or or should I say had? <laughs> you should say had. had. Um, so you. my personal story is a little dramatic. Um, I was diagnosed at 12 into a family that had a known history of sudden death and early deaths from stroke and heart failure. My grandfather died on June 21st, 1953. And he was the first indication something was going on in the family. Then his sister has a stroke in the early 60s and she dies as a result of the stroke at about 50 years old. My uncle was diagnosed as a late teen, early 20s with with IHSS, idiopathic hypertrophic subaortic stenosis. My sister was then diagnosed. And about 1980 at 12 years old, I'm standing in my my junior high, getting my heart listened to by the little doctor who sat on the stool and checked you for scoliosis and listened to your heart back in the day. And he gave this panic look on his face and asked for the room to be cleared. It was a very dramatic moment. And I thought I was in trouble. And he's saying to the nurse, I think it's what she had. I think it's what she had. And I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. It would take me 25 years to answer that. But they sent me home and I had to go to a cardiologist within three days or they weren't going to let me back in school because they were afraid of me. Mm. Uh, My first question to the doctor when he told me my diagnosis, um, knowing that it could lead to sudden death and CPR was not likely to save me in 1980. I would have needed a defibrillator, which is now available, but wasn't then. Um, I just looked at him and said, well, why should I do my homework? Like, you, you've just given me a death sentence. I'll be out of here by 25. Why should I waste my time with schoolwork? This is just ridiculous. So I um, opted out for a while, uh, got in a little trouble. Um, and then I realized I had survived every bad day up until then. So I might as well start paying attention to society again. I think that's kind of common in children with uh, chronic illness. Um, They kind of push the envelope a little bit. And I may have listened to a couple of things that you guys have been talking about in the past. And I think you kind of relate to that too. Is 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 it a, and especially I guess at that time, um, obviously that is 40, a little over 40 years ago, our scientific understanding on everything has progressed a lot since then. At that time, was it a, this will likely kill you mm. by the time you are X age. Was there like, were, were you ever given a number or was it just like, you're at a very high risk <laughs> and um, like what, what kind of information I guess, did you get that, that sort of instilled this idea in you that, um, you know, you know, why bother? So the doctor who diagnosed me and I wish there was some fairy tale story here on how wonderful everything was, but that's not my reality. Um, he was a nice guy. He, he tried his best. It was, you know, Northern New Jersey, 1980, little doctor's office, echocardiograms. You had to go to the hospital and get them because they didn't have machines everywhere. Uh, so times were different. And he said, well, you know, you could live a long life or you could die suddenly. And kind of left it there. And there was probably a lot of other words after there, but that's all I heard at 12. Yeah. So I looked at the rest of my family and I saw my uncle doing well and I saw my sister doing well. So I just figured 
I was just going to have this thing. And occasionally I'd feel like I was going to pass out or occasionally I'd feel like my heart was going to race out of my chest. And uh, no, I wasn't going to be able to participate in competitive athletics any longer. So my softball and my gymnastics were gone. Um, so I just kind of lived and I didn't have a lot of information. And my only support really was my sister. Mm-hmm. And then in 1990, I had a stroke <laughs> at 21, secondary to my HCM diagnosis. And that was on June 16th, 1990. So I'd just gotten married. I decided I was going to get married young. I was going to have the house, the dog, the car, the mortgage, and I was going to live a normal life. Um, and then I had a stroke. And I got some medical debt from the start of the marriage forward. And I've never been out of medical debt since then. Um, But that's just what you deal with with chronic illness. Five years after my stroke, my sister at the age of 36 had a cardiac arrest. And she stayed in a coma for five days. And then she became an organ donor. She had two Mm. kids who were 10 and 13 at the time. And I was eight months pregnant with my daughter. And the whole world changed. Uh, she passed away on June 16th, 1995. Between the 12th and the 16th, which was last week, it's not a good time of year for me. I relive everything, especially when it's that she went down on a Monday and died on a Friday. And this year, the calendar was exactly the same. And I hate those years because you relive every minute. But my sister, Lori, was an awesome person. And we lost her too soon. And a Jersey girl got pissed off that her sister was no longer there. I didn't have support anymore. And I started to look out into this new thing called the internet. It was 1995-6. AOL was all the rage. I paid by the minute. I'm aging myself because most of you look a bit younger than me. uh, So it it was, you know, a new world. And I'm like, hey, I might be able to use this thing called the internet for good. My husband and one of our founding board members love him to death, but he laughed at me and he said, the internet's only going to be good for selling things in porn. And I'm like, oh, uh, oh I, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> In the end, I think my husband might be right, but I was—he yeah, was, uh, wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong. <laughs> he wasn't wrong. <laughs> he wasn't wrong. So um, that was kind of funny. But um, we used the internet to start building an organization hmm. and to give patients a voice and to ensure that diagnosis didn't mean being isolated. And we've built a community and it, it is a we, um, mm. I have a great board of directors. I have fanta- fantastic staff. Um, we have a community of committed volunteers. We're a small community. We're about 25,000 families right now, but we're growing and we're trying to raise awareness that HCM is common Yeah, and the symptoms can be managed and the risks can now be mitigated. And we're even, <laughs> we're even living in a day where Genetic therapies are coming down the pike and our community yeah. might benefit from that. So it's really right. been a wild ride. Lisa, I mean, Jeremy, uh, yours, Jeremy's, Jeremy lives with cystic fibrosis and he's taken a, med- a medication that is, you know, like really changed. It's a gene modulator therapy yeah. and it's like completely changed your disease and mm-hmm. yeah. like what that means to you and what yeah. it could mean for, you know, the rest of your life, which could now be much long, could, could be much longer be. than it, than you originally anticipated. Yeah. yeah. Um, Lisa, I wanted to ask you, there's something that you said earlier. So for context, um, about 10 years ago when I was playing soccer, uh, there was a guy who had a sudden cardiac arrest on the field and he was, uh, uh, a black young black guy. And 
he just like dropped in the middle of the game. There was nobody around him. He fell down. And um, eventually nobody on the field knew CPR. And we waited there for like 45 minutes for an ambulance to come. Mm -hmm. And the ambulance didn't show up. And we later found out that the guy um, died that night. And I, I always felt really guilty that we didn't like nobody knew CPR or did CPR. There was like 45 people around and, and nobody really stepped in. And there's something that you just, you said earlier that was, you know, if, you know, like let's say that if it was HCM that, that, you know, possibly CPR wouldn't have helped anyway. And that maybe what would have been needed was a defibrillator. Can you, can you talk about that? Because like I've carried around a lot of, um, you know, guilt in a lot of ways from not being able to act in that situation. <laughs> and I've since felt really bad about, you know, not doing CPR, but I, I, I guess I kind of like attached onto that, the thing that you said, they're like, you know what, maybe, maybe it wouldn't have helped anyway. Alone CPR is probably not going to resuscitate somebody who has had a fatal arrhythmia, but it does give time for EMS to get there and provide that proper care. What you're doing when you're performing CPR is you are acting as the pump. You are pumping the blood through and by your compressions, you're emptying the pump, you're filling the pump, you're emptying the pump, you're filling the pump. So you do give people time. The likelihood of survival from out of hospital cardiac arrest is under 10% in the United States right now. Unless of course you're in a casino. Casinos and airports are the best places to have cardiac arrest because there's cameras on everything and you can get somebody there really quickly. But otherwise, it's kind of a crapshoot. Um, we all watched, uh, you know, I'm not an NFL follower, but um, I was called to the attention of the screen in the beginning of the year when DeMar had his cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. And everybody's calling me going, what do you think this is? And I looked at it, I said, it looks like commotio cordis, which could happen to anybody. It's a chest blow at the wrong time in the cardiac cycle <clears throat> and that shocks the heart into a chaotic rhythm that eventually causes the person to lose consciousness and die because the heart's not pumping anymore. It's quivering. Mm -hmm. So to relieve some of your worry and anxiety over an out of hospital arrest 10 years ago, the survival rate was way lower than even 10%. It was, I think around 7% or maybe even less than that. <clears throat> but CPR could buy you time. Yeah. Defibrillator is what's going to shock that heart back into rhythm. But if he went asystole and he went no rhythm, you're not going to even shock that back. Mm. You need I adrenaline, do. you need chemicals. Right. I, I do CPR all the time <gasps> now, um, including if my friends like pass out around a campfire, I'll, <laughs> I'll start doing chest compressions right. on There's, them. For context there, <laughs> Taylor me. fainted That's not me. too long ago and Brian immediately started doing chest compressions <laughs> like, without checking to see if he was I breathing. Maybe broke a rib. <laughs> you know, listen, he, back, I, he broke my you know, rib. I, I'm obviously not a trained <laughs> professional, but I'm also not going to stand by when I think that, my friends <laughs> might be dying. Brian's guilt was on full. Brian's previous guilt was on full I mean, honestly, I, mean, I feel good about it. Now. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I want to say this. I think the intention was there. Yeah, uh, but a good lesson learned. Maybe next time, yeah. just put your finger under the, the more nose times, and make sure he's guys. The more times that you're in these these situations, the more that's you right. learn and the better that's prepared right. you'll be that's for right. the next um, time it happens. <laughs> so I'm going to take an advantage here of this conversation because it's a great conversation to have. 
And well before DeMar's um, cardiac arrest, um, probably about the time that your friend or your, your uh, teammate there had his arrest, we created a program. And my nephew actually, who is a volleyball coach um, and was witness to his mother's cardiac arrest, he and I created a program well over a decade ago called Drill Dr. Heart. And it was meant for sports teams to be able to drill for a cardiac emergency like you do any other Ooh. drill for any other play. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like a passing little idea. We have we had a PDF that we would hand out and it was on the website. Um, it was kind of pre-social media. And when Damar went down, I'm like, we need to reinstitute this program because yeah. pe- I thought people already knew, but obviously they don't know. So we need to go back. So we actually created an online challenge for people to have the conversations like you were having. What do we do in the event of an emergency? Do we have a defibrillator on site or are we calling 911? Am I in a school? Do I have to call the nurse? What's the, what's the liability in my employer? Is it a house of worship? There's all these different things you need to stop and think about, but to know basic CPR and you can do hands only today. You don't have to do mouth to mouth. You can do compression only CPR. It's very effective. And you want to get that defibrillator to that person as quickly as possible. Mm. So is it calling 911? Is it making sure you're giving accurate directions how to get to where you are in the building? Which door is the closest access? Is it open during the day? So there needs to be a conversation. Mm. There needs to be a plan. People need to understand the liability in that particular state. Do we have good Samaritan coverage for doing CPR? Most states have it but it's good to know that you have that reassurance because sometimes people are afraid to put hands on somebody else because mm. they might break a rib while they're yeah. trying to save their life. So this yeah. is a problem. So you want to have those conversations and you want to practice it and you mm. want to know, you want to have that muscle memory of what mm. do I do in this circumstance? So the program is available on our website at 4hcm.org and everybody should know it, whether you know what hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is, whether you think you need to be prepared for it or not, I'm going to give you a statistic. It's going to freak you out. Every day in America, over a thousand people have out of hospital cardiac arrest. That is the equivalent of two 747s crashing every single day and the no survivors. Wow. That, wow. Yeah, that, I mean, yeah, that, that is, that, that's an astounding stat. Um, and like, I, I got, I gotta say that for, for something that is so common, you said one in 200. I mean, that's not rare. That's not rare. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of shocked that I don't, like with something that's so common, I'm not, a, I'm not aware of. Like, again, we came into this and I was like, I don't know what hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, you know, I've got, I got a couple questions pertaining to that. So We've been talking a lot about cystic fibrosis lately because we're we're producing another podcast for the for CF Canada here up here in Canada, and one of the things that um, we've been talking about is like the pre screening process for for cystic fibrosis. So currently, if a baby is born in Canada in America, um, the baby has screening to figure out you know if the baby has any kind of illnesses and. Cystic fibrosis is one of the illnesses that they just pre-screen for babies right off the bat, every baby that's born. The, I think it's, what is it? One in 4,000, one in 5,000 people have CF in Canada? Uh, one in 3,000. One something. in 3,000, something around there? Three or four. Um, a lot more rare than HCM. 
And so what is the screening process that exists? Has it changed over the years since you've started HCMA? Um, or is it, is it kind of a case where they go, you got a family history, so we're just going to assume the worst uh, until we come up against some kind of, um, you know, some kind of abnormality or issue in your youth? So great questions. And newborn screenings will find only a very tiny fragment of our population because the majority are not born with the expression Ah, of the disease. Okay, okay. You're born with a genetic marker that may predispose you to developing HCM. For reasons we're not 100% sure of yet, the average age of onset is adolescence. So when you hit puberty and those hormones change, something also changes in the heart. So typically, if you're in a family with HCM, we might listen to the baby's heart. We'll keep an eye on the toddler, but we're going to start doing EKGs, echocardiograms, and workups with cardiologists starting at about 11, 12 years old onset of puberty. And those screenings are done every year with those same tests within those HCM families. The problem is not everybody knows their heart health history. Mm -hmm. And we don't sometimes have great data going back generations as to what happened to people. So we're working on some initiatives right now. Um, I just came back from a big meeting um, down in Annapolis, Maryland, called Women in Government. And I was talking to state lawmakers about the legislative initiatives that we're moving forward in the United States. And hopefully um, we have some inroads potentially to do similar things in Canada. Um, I just consider like Canadians, Americans with healthcare and no guns because we're kind of alike, you know, we get along. That's pretty much it. Yeah, we're kind of alike. So um, I had to get my Canadian jokes in. I love my Canadian people. We have a lot of Canadian members, so I love them. So anyway, what we're doing down here in America right now is we have this legislation, which we are asking that every state institute well child examination inclusion of heart history. So down here and up in Canada, you do pre-participation screening physicals for student athletes. There is no reason why we're not asking those same heart-related questions about all children because people have hearts, not athletes versus non-athletes. And some people with cardiac conditions end up deselecting themselves from competitive competition because they can't keep up. Mm. When you start to get to teams where you have to win your spot and you have to prove your worth, we don't run as fast as other people sometimes because we have this cardiac problem. Mm. So we're looking to include in the well-child examination in the United States covered by ACA, every well-child exam from one to 90 would ask about family heart health history. And we'd start having those deeper conversations. What happened to grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles, cousins, any atrial fibrillation, any cardiac arrest, any early heart surgeries, any pacemakers, defibrillators, any transplants. So you start asking those questions and you start the dialogue. When technology advances, maybe a scooch further, there may be some testing that's going to be able to be done in a GP's office. But right now we're not quite there because you'd screen a lot. There'd be a lot of false positives and a lot of false negatives with EKG and echocardiogram is very difficult to do in mass. So we kind of have to wait for some signs and symptoms and then we can unload all those tests and then we can look further. 
But a family history of sudden death under the age of 55, you really want to look at genetic causes. Yeah. Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. It is a very, uh, it is a very scary, uh, it is a very scary thing. Like I've, I've thought about it a lot. I'm, I'm, I, uh, you were born I, with a weird heart thing, weren't you? Yeah. Well, like it's kind of like in the direction you got weird that sperm. We know that because, uh, <laughs> because you had to do IVF. That's right. That's right. So his sperm's all weird. That's and then right. you got a weird heart sperm's too. Weird. Is that what's, what heart's, else? What heart's, a little, be heart's a little weird. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, like, I think, I think we just long. almost had a spit take. I think Lisa literally almost just spit something. <laughs> almost. I sipped my hint water and it almost went out my nose. Thank you so much. <laughs> Sorry, um, but you were born with a heart thing. Right? I, I, I was, but I am a, I am a, a high level cyclist and, uh, you know, the, the stories of athletes collapsing and sometimes dying and in professional cycling, there's, there's actually, there's, it seems like at least once a year, somebody from one of the biggest teams is told that they have to retire, uh, because they were out training and they got a pain in their chest or whatever. And Mm. they end up being seen by the physician and the physician says, Hey, you have a, you have a heart condition that like, like it's either if you want to continue being a pro cyclist, you're probably it's probably going to kill you. So mm. it's either retire or die. Dude, man. And like the thought, like, you know, a soccer player or a football player having a cardiac arrest and falling on the field. I mean, that's that's awful. It's that that's but you I mean, when you're out riding a bike, when you're going, an hour, going yeah. yeah, 60 kilometers per hour down a hill, having a cardiac arrest. That's another fucking yeah. story. And so it's something it's something that I uh, that I was concerned about because I grew up with this heart thing. Um, can, it, do you it, know what it is? Can you say? I, I'm not exactly sure what the condition was. It was a, I had a, I had a murmur when I was a child and it was like, it was something to do with the development of, of, uh, of a part of my heart that I, I grew out of after I was 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then like a handful of years ago, I started to get this like little, like this little like skip of a beat every so often. So I went down the path of, of getting that checked out and, um, and I, at the same time as I, f- I did feel okay with what I was getting back from, from doctors about how serious it, it might be or, and, and how much I should be concerned about it or what it could be, uh, I, I was ultimately satisfied with, with what I got back. But I did at, at every turn feel like a little bit of like a dismissiveness because of my, because of my fitness level. It was you almost, look healthy. Exactly. Mm. It was. It was very much like, oh well, like you're, you know, you you're in this like you're, you're at like. They just kept saying specimen. You're at this. Just, you know, <laughs> like it was weird. <laughs> they kept just looking at your legs. Going, sorry, what? I I'm sorry. I yeah. I, what did you say? I, I, I gapped in there. <laughs> they, really, damn! I, I look really at those did, legs. I, really, I really did like feel chisel. I really. Do you did shave feel. them or are they just naturally <laughs> like that? Yeah, dude, I shave them. <laughs> <laughs> I really did feel like I was being kind of dismissed for right. being for being fit. Right. And and that it was like, well, if you're as fit as you are, then the likelihood of you having 
a a heart thing that is that that you should be concerned about is like is very small and i kind of felt like i just wasn't i felt like i didn't get the full like run up of things that a person mm. should probably get if they were if they were concerned about something like this and so i i when i hear you talking about all this stuff lisa i'm I am really I'm really connecting with the idea that this can go undiagnosed because it can show up as like these these like little things that little palpitations. I felt a little flutter in my chest. I had chest pain and I don't know why I walked up a flight of stairs and felt a little weird. These are all common symptoms of HCM. Mm. And even as the disease progresses. Like I was 12 when I was diagnosed. Um, I haven't quite gotten to the end of my story yet because I take a twist mm-hmm. um, and I'm a, I got something here to show you about that twist. But as your disease progresses, you start to take on things as being normal. Oh, yeah, I just get these palpitations. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I have a murmur once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just a murmur. It's nothing. Um, I get dizzy once in a while. Yeah, I had to sit down or I was going to pass out like a couple of weeks ago, but I was tired and I didn't drink right that day. And you start making excuses for yourself. Yeah, yeah. Why you didn't optimize your health when in actuality, if your heart is malfunctioning in some way, hearts can malfunction in a lot of ways and still work. Mm. So HCM is not like a death sentence. It's a chronic disease that requires expert management because if you overtreat it, you feel terrible. If you undertreat it, you feel terrible. And it's really hard to find that sweet spot in the middle. Mm. And up until last year, we didn't even have a medication made for us. Right. We were using everything else from everybody else and all the side effects too. Beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, antiarrhythmics, diuretics at young ages. And now we have something called myosin inhibitors, which remember that cardiac sarcomere thing I was talking about? Mm. The thing that drives the cardiac sarcomere is a chemical reaction between actin and myosin. Our myosin don't work right. So now we figured out a way to make them act better with a myosin inhibitor. And now the genetic therapies that I know came to cystic fibrosis and are coming to HCM can actually replace some of the myosin binding protein C that is abnormal in some of the people with HCM. Right. So it's Man. uber cool. Some but people are me... so smart. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> I, I get to know a lot of really smart people and you hang around them a bit and you get a little smarter too. Um, but I'm in awe of some of these scientists that are working on these projects yeah, that are yeah. really life-changing. And I'm only here because of a lot of work that was done well before I was born Ooh. and that continued my entire life. Because back in 2016, my HCM took a turn. And at the age of 47, 48, I was told there's nothing left. You're dying. And you need a heart transplant. So remember back in uh, 95, I told you my sister became a donor. When that happened, I said to my family, as we saw in the papers, remember what this feels like. Because I have a sneaking suspicion I'm going to be on the other side someday. 22, 23 years later, there I am. I'm signing the papers to be put on the list as a recipient. So I've signed the papers for a donor and I've signed the papers as a recipient. And it's crazy. And um, 
So I had a divorce from my heart. I know you guys like to be a little uh, lighter here and I have some dark humor I can share with you here. Please. So um, I'm unpackaging something here for those who are listening. Oh and God. in my hands, it's not, it's not your heart. This is my heart. Whoa, Whoa. actually, for real. No. Whoa. Holy shit. Whoa. That's crazy. For people that are, uh, that, oh my God, it looks <laughs> it a cast of your heart or is it your actual no, this heart? This is my heart. It has been plastinized. Wow. It's so, so for people just listening, we are, uh, we're looking at, we're looking at Lisa's heart, but it's, it's split in two. So you can see yes. it's dissected. So you can see wow. the inside. Wow. And look how little that little heart is. It's so cute. That's one of the coolest <laughs> things I've ever seen. That is nuts. I was, I was just how picturing a heart being like, to you? like way bigger, but it's, it's just a little thing. It's, it's, just, it's the size of my fist, yeah. but there's no inside. There's no cavity. So the story of how I landed with my heart on my desk is as oh, follows. Crazy. Um, I did not want to transplant. I, I thought that it was quitting and I didn't want to give up. And um, I had to come to the decision that it was going to be an amicable divorce. She had to go and I had to stay. And I separated myself from that organ. Um, when it was handed back to me three days after my, my transplant, um, you know, you're, you're, you just say what's on your mind at this point. I'm, I'm, on pregnisone and all kinds of other drugs. And they hand me back my heart. It's a little surreal. And I just said, so you're the little bitch that's caused all the trouble. <laughs> and uh, her nickname is the bitch. We had an amicable divorce. I've got custody and we're okay now. Um, little, little dark humor at the girl, but I work to educate people about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And there is no better oh my God, moment than to look at an actual heart and say, this is the disease. This is the problem. These little white spots aren't supposed to be here. That's scar. Right. This wall isn't supposed to be fat over here and thin over there. It's supposed to be even. And you can actually explain it. And we have wow. um, currently eight other hearts in the collection. Um, two of the hearts, um, their prior owners are deceased and the rest have gone on to transplant and they're doing well today. So we educate through this anatomy and uh, it's, it's wow. kind of fun to watch people's reaction when you hold your heart in your hand and they're like, what the hell yeah. is that? What kind is of hoops that? did you have to go through to get your heart? So I'm, I'm, um, I'm pretty persuasive when I want to be. And I said, look, it's not yours. It's mine. It's pathology. And they went, well, yeah, technically I'm like, I want custody of it and I want it. And my transplant center went, okay. And looked at me as if I was an absolutely insane woman. I said, no, 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 here's why. And then I explained the why. And they're like, okay, that actually makes sense. So my heart was taken out of me, frozen, and then shipped to my dear friend. Um, his name is Dr. William Clifford Roberts. He lives in Dallas. He passed away last week. He was 90 years old. Uh, um, he was a, a, just a phenomenal human being. He was the former editor of the American Journal of Cardiology. Oh, wow. He's kind of a fancy friend. Yeah. And um, my fancy friend has this technique for cutting hearts. And he was the one who knew how to do this cut. And that's all the hearts have been processed by Bill Roberts. And um, then I sent it off to my friends. I found new friends. I have a lot of friends. Um, they were at the University of Toledo at the time, and now they're moving to Drexel in Pennsylvania. But they had a plastinization lab. 
And I called them up. I said, I want to keep my heart. This is why I want to keep it. Can you help me with plastinization services? And they're like, oh my God, that's so cool. Absolutely, yes. So Carlos Baptista and Bill Frank were on that team and they plastinized my heart. Um, And I just went out to see them a couple months ago because they were leaving the institution and moving to the new one. And I had four other hearts to pick up. And I got to bring one of them up to a friend in, in outside of Detroit and say, hey, how you doing? Here's your old heart. And wow. have a moment with her plastinized heart as well. And we use them for medical education mm. and awareness. And yeah. um, it is a little weird. Um, I don't think you ever quite get over holding your own heart. Yeah, that's got to um, be a trip. Like, uh, you know, that just holding it in your hand and yeah. separating it and going, that was, this was my ticker. Like, and seeing the thing like, what's, that, what was wrong. Yeah. yeah. I, I really wanted yeah. to ask you, Lisa. Like, I want my lungs uh, if I ever get... Uh, <laughs> these suckers removed. They're a little harder to plastinize. We can go into that later, but yeah. I'm really, I'm really curious for you, um, like knowing, uh, learning about your heart as you learned about your disease, uh, as you sort of grew with it throughout your life and, and you're told all these things about this thing that's happening inside of you. I'm curious what the moment was like for you when you actually got to hold your heart and like see, you know, all of those things that you had been told were happening, but you know, like you can't actually see until you really hold it and see it. What was that experience like? So I actually captured it. It's, it's on our YouTube channel. You can go watch it. Um, it's really shitty coverage because it's, I, I didn't mean to be doing it that day. So I didn't have a film crew. I just had my cell phone. So, um, about seven months after my transplant, six months after my transplant, I got back on the road and I was going to do a site visit in, in Dallas and, um, realized that Bill had not sent me back my heart yet. He'd had it for a couple months and I was in town. So I called him and I'm like, dude, I'm going to be in town in like 24 hours. How about I stay an extra day and we do the heart thing and you can cut it. He goes with you here. I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? Never done that before. I've never cut open somebody's heart with them literally watching. I'm like, oh, it's just me. We can do this. And I know this sounds a little twisted, but it was it was like childhood excitement, like birthday, Christmas kind of excitement. Like yeah, I get to of see course. this. Yeah. I get to see this. And then as the moments grew closer, I got nervous Ooh. because I have all my life minimized my symptoms and minimized how bad I felt. And I just learned to live with it. And then I thought, if they open this up and it doesn't look really bad, I'm going to look like a big old wimp who went to transplant too soon. So I was like nervous that it wasn't going to look horrible. And if it looked okay, then I was going to feel really guilty for taking a donor heart. And I was doing this live. So it wasn't like I could hide it from anybody. It is what it is. And as he cut, he had the the biggest, like um, imagine a razor blade that's a foot long. Mm. That's what the knife was like. It was that sharp, actually sharper than a razor blade. And he's just, touched it so gently and the heart falls apart. And as it opened up and I saw all of that thickness and all of that scarring and all that white, I went, Oh good. I really needed a transplant because that's really nasty <laughs> and sustainable with life. Whoa. Wow, that's, that's such so, a wild experience. It really is wild. So, and so cool. now you don't. And is that why you say that you had HCM because mm-hmm. that is I will always the carry the genetic marker. Right. But it will not transfer to the new heart. Right. Yeah. 
So I do not have active hypertrophic cardiomyopathy because that's sitting on my desk. Mm -hmm. I have a beautiful donor heart. All I know about my donor is her name was Brandy. I'm not even sure where she lived. An hour's flight from Northern New Jersey. I've got one letter from her sister, Mandy, who talked to me a little bit, like two paragraphs about her sister. Um, And then we lost contact. So someday I would absolutely love to meet my donor family to say thank you. Mm. Um, But if it's not right for them, then it's not right. And someday I'm hoping that I get that phone call, email, knock on the door. Hey, want to talk? Absolutely. What, I mean, what a, what a fascinating, beautiful, um, literally like a literally heartwarming story to uh, just to hear, just to hear like, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to picture right now, like what it would feel like for me to look at my lungs, like these lungs that I have struggled with my entire life. And it just, it just boggles my mind. It, it like just what an unbelievably wild and like powerful experience that, that must be to be, to be, you know, sitting in this, in this space with a, with a doctor, with your new heart that is, you know, that is unencumbered by HCM and, and to see the, you know, the heart that you struggled with and to see it open up, like, it's just fucking crazy. It's really, really cool that you had that opportunity. It was one of the most special moments of my life. I would put it up there with when my daughter was born and I got to see her for the first time. It was that kind of a moment. And I, I was not prepared I did not know, like <laughs> nobody can prepare you for, you're about to see the inside of your heart. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of like the same thing as your daughter being born because it's like something that was inside of you comes outside yeah. of you and you're like, yeah. holy shit, that's yeah. fucking dope. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. yeah. Like, the only difference is then you just, you like plasticize one. <laughs> and put it on your desk. <laughs> and then the other one. It doesn't you know. normally sit on my desk. I pulled her out because I thought you guys would get a kick yeah, out of seeing yeah. her, but she's oh. normally in this box with some of her friends. Oh yeah, there you go. It's a little cooler with yeah. you know human organ transplant thing on there. Uh, what, a little what sense does, of humor there too. What does uh what does life feel like after a transplant and getting an organ that is not uh that is that doesn't carry the disease that you've lived with, you know, like something that you've lived with for so long that that in a lot of ways, you know, you said you minimize and probably normalize in a lot of ways and um shrug off like that's just how that's just how my life is, and then all of a sudden you've got a new heart. So it is It is hard to put words on it, Um, but I can tell you that I didn't know that every time, you know, I felt my heart beat all the time. I could hear it through my carotid and, you know, the way that your veins go behind your ears. Mm -hmm. It was so hard and it, it, it was so irregular at the end. I heard literally every heartbeat. And when I woke up, the first thing I noticed, now I'm in a hospital, I'm in intensive care, there's lots of noise, and I have an air purifier in my room that's like this massive thing to keep all contaminants out while I have no immune system. And I said, wow, it's really quiet. (laughs) And they all looked at me like I was insane because (laughs) it was a loud room. And they're like, what do you mean it's quiet? Can you hear us? I'm like, oh, I can hear you perfectly but I don't hear my heart beating anymore. And they all kind of looked at me. That's not a normal thing for somebody with a transplant because most transplanted hearts get weak and don't have a big squeeze. 
but my whole life mm-hmm. I heard the 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 behind everything. Wow. And I didn't even know that that was not normal until I woke wow. up and it was quiet. Whoa. Yeah, right. And it took me months to be able to sleep without I I would I still do it because it's a fun habit, but I'll listen to podcasts as I fall asleep because I'm not used to it being quiet. Right. A quiet room is really unsettling to me. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's wild. Yeah, your heartbeat is like, this white noise it is, machine. It is in. so strange. It's like mm. it's kind of like I mean, the only way that I can really relate to that is 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 I live in a quite a small place, and so the hum of my fridge mm. is is quite apparent when it turns off. You know, it's like it's the white noise that you didn't know was there, and then all then when it turns off, you're like, holy yeah, the, shit, yeah, the, that thing yeah, was loud. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and you're like, whoa, and I do feel like yeah. that sometimes. I go like, oh, now yeah. I can't go to sleep. I, 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 um, we, we, there's one, there's, there's one two part question that we ask most of our guests and I'd like to ask you, but before we get to that, I would like to come back to, to this thing that Taylor is dealing with. Um, because again, you said one in 200 people have it, have HCM, which is not, which is again, again, common. And I'm sure that out of the amount of people that listen to this podcast, there's at least a handful of people that maybe have HCM and they don't even know it. And like Taylor, perhaps those people have experienced things where they thought, well, that's weird, but then they downplay it or they push it aside or they just go, oh, this is normal. This is what it's been like my whole life. So in that case, for, you know, for Taylor, for example, and not, not to like give him medical advice, but like. I should say that I, I, I specifically expressed concern about this specifically. Not, not sorry, I shouldn't say about um, HCM. hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but. But like about the idea of, you know, yeah. being an athlete and dropping dead. Like, sure, yes. Which I'm sure I, I'm assuming a cardiologist who I spoke with would have kind of considered this like umbrella. Right. Sure. OK, so you saw a cardiologist. Well, let's I say did, someone yeah. didn't see a cardiologist um, and they have the they, you know, they've had these similar symptoms. What do you recommend that they do? Like, is it is it as simple as going, hey, family doctor, if you have one, um, I have this concern or is there, is there kind of the more that you want to do to advocate for yourself to really get to the, the bottom of it? So it's an excellent question, and it's a complex answer because it depends on a number of different factors. The country of origin is one because that'll determine your healthcare access and whether or not you have access. Um, you always, in modern American, Canadian, European models, you'll have a PCP, a, a primary care physician, um, general doctor, family doctor. Talk to them first about the symptoms that you're feeling. Look at your own family heart health history and start asking questions. Mom, dad, do you have hypertension? Do you have, do you have a valve disease? You know, anything that they can tell you can be used downstream in the family to look for other disease states. You should always be talking about your family heart health history, as well as your family health history. What cancers run in the family? What congenital issues are there, whether it's orthopedic or whether it's cardiac, you want to know what's in your family because that'll give people a better idea on what to target on you. It's not a guarantee that we're going to find things just because they run in the family, but that tells us where the suspicions might be as a starting point. So symptoms and family history, look at those two things and bring them to your your general practitioner. Starting off with a baseline EKG, which is inexpensive and accessible for most people is typically a good starting place, but a normal ECG can happen in HCM. So you don't want to just stop at, okay, 
Do I have any abnormalities in the electrical impulses coming from my heart measured by ECG? If it's unclear or there's something going on, imaging of the heart can be very helpful. An echocardiogram. We look at the wall measurements. We look at the valve function. We look at how much blood is being processed per contraction. And that'll give you an idea if there's any structural diseases. If the rhythms, the palpitations are infrequent, you can use an event monitor. You can wear it for the 24-hour ones are kind of passe and you need more time because it's a very small part of your existence on the planet. So you want to look at it, you know, a wearable monitor that can last seven to 10 days. And you don't want to study for the test. You don't want to behave because you're wearing a cardiac monitor. You want to be normal. If you normally run up the stairs, run up the stairs. If you normally have a drink on Friday night, have a drink on Friday night. If you normally smoke and pot, smoke pot. Whatever your normal is, be your normal. Don't try to study for a test. So if you do all of that and they find anything that's abnormal, then we'll get you to a diagnosis and treatment. If everything is, is fine and there's nothing there, you still want to listen to your body because diseases can develop over life. It is common for HCM to develop by adolescents, but it is not uncommon for it to show up for the first time in your 40s or 50s because technology got better, the imaging was better, or you have more pronounced disease. Mm. Um, thank you for that because I, again, like I, I feel like, you know, we're, we're, ba- we're really big on patient advocacy and we're always trying to push for people to like step into their role as their own advocate because sometimes... Um, you know, you're going to be your best advocate. And sometimes people don't have those people to kind of step in for them when they need it. So uh, thank you for that. I, I would I would love to know, um, what, would, what would you say is the biggest thing that HCM has taken away from you? People. Mm-hmm. And um, they're not just my biologic family. They're members of the community. Um, We lost one this month unexpectedly. She was 70, lovely woman. Um, We've lost children. We've lost loved ones. We lose people. And some of them die from needing a heart transplant, not getting there in time. Some of them die from sudden death. Some of them die because even though we know risk factors for cardiac arrest, they didn't feel like they were going to die. I hate when I hear people say, but I don't feel like I'm at risk. We know the factors. If your heart has so much scar, if you've had some types of arrhythmias, if your family history looks a certain way, if your heart is a certain thickness, these are risk factors. And there are people who have risk factors who just don't want to listen to them and we lose them. So they frustrate me the most because I can see it clear as day and I know the data is there. But to tell somebody to put an implantable device in that's going to monitor their heart forever is a little intimidating for some. I lived with a device for 25 years. I missed my device after my transplant. I felt a little unprotected out in the world, but um, devices are safe and, and it's better than being at risk of sudden death. What would you say is the biggest thing that it's given you? Community. Um, I didn't know that I was going to need them in the way that I needed them. When I started this, I was there for others because my sister was gone for me. So I needed to know that I wasn't alone, right? So we start building up the HCMA community, first with a website, then with a message board, and then social media came in. And now we have online discussion groups and all kinds of different events that we do around the, the country and around the world. But 
when I needed my transplant, I hadn't really talked about my own HCM for to the community. I was their problem. I was there to help them through and build centers and find doctors and put those connections together. But when I needed a community to support me when I was really sick, they were there for me. And um, it's taken a lot away. It's given me a lot. My sister died. She gave her life for the cause, not willingly, not knowingly, but because my sister died, I have built a community with a community and we've developed programs and processes and improved care that I'm glad to say that my sister's life meant a lot more than she ever knew. Mm. She saved a lot of lives. Lisa, you are a phenomenal guest. This has been a really lovely conversation. We're so glad that you took time out of your schedule to sit down and chat with us. And uh, on behalf of myself, the guys, and all of our listeners, thank you so, 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 so much. Mm -hmm. Thanks for what you guys do. I think you're bringing an important voice to the chronically ill. And there's a lot of us out here. uh, And we don't all look sick. We look pretty damn good, I'd say. Um, (laughs) But keeping the conversation going and normalizing chronic illness is really important. and, And I'm happy to be a partner in that. And maybe we'll talk again someday. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully. Thank you. And also thank you for the show and tell. <laughs> that's right, that's yeah, right. I kind of thought you guys would get it. I, I pulled it out. I'm like, do I, don't I, do I, don't I? I do. You do. Right. You do. I do. Always. Yeah. Anybody listening, you got that's organs. Right. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.